Well, let's open in our Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy this morning. 1 Timothy, page 991, if you'd like to use one of the church Bibles in front of you. 1 Timothy. Last week, one of the more astute members of the congregation commented to me after my sermon, you just preached a topical sermon about why you don't preach topical sermons. (laughs) And she was entirely right. Um, This morning, I intend to preach an expositional sermon, but I I intend to do so on the entire book of 1 Timothy. And uh, so if you'll turn there to 1 Timothy, page 991, I want to begin by reading from chapter 3 and verses 14 through 16, and after we've done so, we'll begin. This is Paul, the apostle, writing to Timothy, a young pastor over the church in Ephesus. Paul says to him, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's Word. Let's bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, we again thank You that You are indeed the God of glory, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have revealed Yourself to us in Your words that we might know You and might grow in our faith and knowledge of Your Son. We pray that by the Spirit You would help us to understand and submit to the truth of Your Word even when it's difficult. We pray that You would help us to learn together what it means to be healthy as a church as we study 1 Timothy together. And we pray all that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you've observed this, that we live in the midst of a health-crazed society. If you don't believe me, let me just suggest to you that you'll know exactly what each of these things is simply by hearing them. Clean eating, intermittent fasting, the keto diet. If you want to move away from the realm of foods, you'll know immediately what essential oils and alternative medicine are. You'll know that the fitness and dietary supplement industry is booming. It is estimated that Americans alone, Americans, spend $30 billion per year on dietary supplements, vitamins, and protein shakes and the like. And if that doesn't convince you, let me just ask you this. Has there ever been a time in the history of civilization in which kale has had a better reputation? (laughs) Everybody loves kale out of nowhere. We are a health-obsessed society. And what begins as an individual desire to be more healthy translates ultimately into a desire for our corporate health as Legislation is pushed to legislate our healthy habits. 
I wonder if you've ever thought as much about spiritual health as you have physical health. More than that, I wonder if you've ever considered the importance of our corporate spiritual health as much as some have considered our corporate physical health as Americans. This morning, as we make our way through this sermon series on our core values, things that we have framed as values that we are willing to be punished for, we're willing to pay the price for, we come to our third and final core value, that is that we value church health rather than church growth. We've seen that we value being gospel-centered rather than seeker-sensitive. We've seen that we value Bible preaching rather than preaching from the Bible. And this morning, we come again to our third and final core value, that we value church health rather than church growth. Now, this is the value that I believe ties all of the values together. But I want to begin just by sort of knocking away any sort of misconception that what I'm saying is that we're not concerned about people coming to know Jesus through our ministry or growing in numbers as a church. That's, of course, not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, however, that we are more concerned with our health as a church and that health translating into a healthy growth than we are simply growing by any means necessary. Church health and church growth aren't entirely unrelated, but they are uh, very different when it comes to focus. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is, you just take my advice, if you go home this afternoon, on your way home you pick yourself up a gallon of ice cream, and you eat the entire gallon today, and you do the same the next day, and the next day, for the next month, this is not my professional medical uh, opinion, but I think you're going to grow. And I think... (laughs) I think people are going to observe the fact that you're growing. In fact, people will come to you and say, boy, how you have grown. It's <laughs> remarkable. How, what's your secret? And you'll say, my pastor told me to eat a gallon of ice cream every day. And then they'll say, I'm never going to your church ever. <laughs> we all know that there are healthy ways and unhealthy ways to grow. And all I mean to say this morning is that we want to be concerned about healthy growth. We're going to prioritize our health rather than growth. Mark Dever, I think, defines church health better than anybody in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. He says, we need churches, this is what it means to be a healthy church, we need churches in which the key indicator, this is the primary indicator of success, is not evident results. Success is not how many conversions we've tallied up, how many baptisms we've tallied up, how easily we meet our budget. They may be signs, but they are not the key indicator of success. Rather, the key indicator of success is not evident results, but persevering biblical faithfulness. We're redefining success. To say success biblically is faithfulness. It's interesting as we turn our attention to the book of 1 Timothy that Paul says in chapter 3, the passage that we read together, that he is writing verse 15, if you just look there, I am writing these things to you so that... So this is a purpose statement. Very simple biblical interpretation principle. If the writer of a book is telling you why they're writing their book, that's going to become for you the main idea of the entire book. 
So here we go, chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says to Timothy, but I am writing these things to you, these things in this letter, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This book is about how Timothy, a young pastor, is to behave in the church. This is what Timothy is supposed to do as a minister. Now, I just want to tell you at the outset that church growth tactics are conspicuously absent. But there's a lot to be said about health. We've been studying this letter as a group of elders, and we've come up with a really pregnant sentence to describe what the book is about. First Timothy is a charge. You get that repeated refrain over and over again, I charge you, I charge you. It's a charge to behave according to the truth in the church so as not to swerve from it. Over and over again, we have indications of people leaving the faith throughout the letter of 1 Timothy. This is a charge to behave according to the truth in the church so as not to swerve from it. And truth is paramount. You notice that as Paul describes what the church is, we have to know what the church is before we even consider what it does. When he describes what the church is, he describes it as a pillar and buttress of the truth. He goes in in verse 16 to give a confessional statement about the gospel. The church, Paul says, is supposed to hold up the truth. It's supposed to uphold the truth, to support the truth. As you watch football this afternoon, undoubtedly you'll see people holding up signs with whatever they feel is most important to say at that moment. What Paul is saying here is that the sign that you and I hold up, that we hold up together as the church, is the great mystery of godliness of verse 16. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. He came. He lived. He died. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was raised from the dead. He was seen by angels at His resurrection. He was proclaimed among the nations. It's the task that God has given us to fulfill. He's believed on in the world from every tribe, tongue, and nation and taken up in glory. That is the ascension. Paul says that the purpose of the church is to hold the truth of the Gospel up for everyone to see it. So that's who we are and what we're to do. How is it that we're supposed to do that? Now, each and every chapter in 1 Timothy gives us a new lesson on how to behave in the church. We're not going to read every verse. We can't cover every verse. We're going to take this as an overview. But I want you to see first, the first way that Timothy is to behave in the church is to wage the good warfare for the gospel. He is to wage the good warfare for the gospel. This is chapter 1. Paul begins in verses 3 to 7 to explain to Timothy that there are people who have come obsessed with, verse 4, myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation that Timothy is to shut down. And you say the irony of this, Mike, of course, is that last week, as you talked about expositional preaching, you talked about the fact that you might, on one occasion, preach a sermon on 1 Chronicles 2, which is a genealogy, and so you need Timothy to come to First Baptist and shut you down. Wouldn't you be happy if that was the case? But notice that Paul is here talking about endless genealogies and myths. He's talking about people who are making things up rather than, as we say all the time, keeping the main things the plain things. The main and plain teaching of God in Christ and the Gospel. Not only are they addicted, it seems, to myths and endless genealogies, 
But he tells us in verse 7 that this same group of people desires to be teachers of the law. However, they do not understand either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul finds no problem with calling a spade a spade when the gospel is at stake. I want you to notice that Paul will even name names, verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here are people who do nothing but talk. Paul says, however, they don't even understand what it is that they're talking about. He comes back to this in chapter 6. If anyone, verse 3 of chapter 6, teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, that's healthy words, of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Paul is a realist. And when the gospel is at stake, he will call a spade a spade. Now what he hones in on in chapter 1 is an error that is common throughout churches, throughout church history, and that is the error of confusing the law and the gospel. Confusing the law and the gospel. He says these men want to be teachers of the law. They have no idea even what they're talking about. Verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So understand this. There is an approach to handling the commandments of God that is unlawful. You like that play on words? The law of God is useful if it's used lawfully. The way in which people unlawfully use the law is when the law is front-loaded as a mechanism to make people right with God. The law cannot do that. Our message here this morning is not that Christianity is a religion for good people to be made better people. That is not the message of the Gospel. The law, Paul goes on to explain, is not laid down for the just, but look at verse 9. It's laid down for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to, again, healthy doctrine. Who is the law for, according to Paul? The law is for sinners. Because the law, loved ones, is like a diagnostic tool that shows us our plight, what's wrong with us, in the hopes that having our brokenness revealed, we will then be led to faith in Jesus, who is the only solution. I mean, imagine you go to the doctor later on this week and the doctor orders a blood test for you. Wants to discover if there's something wrong with you. There's some symptoms that trouble her. And so she orders a blood test for you. And the blood test comes back with the results and it says that you have diabetes. Friends, the blood test might reveal that you have diabetes. The blood test, understand, cannot cure your diabetes. That's the function of the law. It reveals the disease of sin, but it cannot, was never meant to heal the disease of sin. Paul says the fundamental error in an unhealthy church is confusing the law and the gospel. 
It is Jesus that freely saves us from our sins. If you're a non-Christian here this morning and someone has told you that really, in light of your sin, what you need to do is begin to behave more like a Christian, first of all, I have to tell you, I don't even know what that means. And secondly, I'm sorry. Because you've been misled. No, the message of the Gospel is that you are broken and condemned because of your sins, and that in Jesus, the worst of sinners can find acceptance and forgiveness and eternal life by faith today. That's where Paul goes next in verse 12. He presents himself as exhibit A of someone who has come to understand his brokenness in light of the law and the salvation that is found only in Jesus. We're not going to look at everything that he says here, but look at the way that he begins to discuss this in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Here we go. Though formerly, this is who I was, Paul says, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy. He goes on to say in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Listen, not to make good people better people. No, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. I'm the worst there's never been anybody in comparison to me. And yet Jesus saved me. That's the Gospel. John Newton, we considered him in my growth group on Thursday night, but as John Newton was writing in one of his final letters to a Baptist minister by the name of John Ryland, he explains his life and his conversion and says, oh, what a horrid wretch was I when on board the Harwick. That was a slave trading ship. He was a slave trader on the coast of Africa, and too long afterwards, surely, he says, no one who did not finally perish, that is, no one who didn't ultimately go to hell, was ever more apparently given up to a reprobate mind. I am a singular and striking proof, that's what Paul is saying, that the atoning blood of Jesus can cleanse from the most enormous sins, and that His grace can soften the hardest heart, subdue the most obstinate habits of evil, and that He is indeed able to save to the uttermost. That is our message. That is the Gospel. Timothy is to wage the good warfare for this message, verse 18. This charge, Paul says, I entrust to you that by them you may wage the good warfare. In other words, fight for this gospel. If we're going to be a healthy church, we have to be good fighters. And the thing that's most worthy of fighting for, it's not endless genealogies and myths, it's the truth of the gospel that saves us from the condemning power of the law. That is our message. That's what it means to be a healthy church. Secondly, Paul goes on to say, not only are we to wage good warfare for the gospel, but we are to order worship by God's design. This is chapter 2. Chapter 2. Now, Paul is going to say some very difficult things in this passage, both politically for some and in terms of gender roles for others. If we believe that the Bible is inspired by God, that it is His Word, then we have no ability to fiddle with the message. 
Was what does Paul say? We're to order worship by God's design. And he begins in the first seven verses by instructing us to pray. Look at what he says. Verse 1. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. In order to order our worship by God's design, our worship must contain or have as a, a major part of it prayer. But prayer specifically here for all people. Look at how he defines all people. He means all kinds of people. Verse 2, kings, those who are in high positions. Why? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people, kings and people in high positions, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Friends, this is just really helpful to get in our minds as we approach in one year's time another election cycle that whether or not the president changes, our responsibility does not. It does not matter if you are a Republican or a Democrat. Paul is clear that in the church, in order for us to be healthy, we must be in prayer, give ourselves to prayer routinely for those who are in positions of authority. Prayer, first of all, that they might come to know Jesus themselves, but prayer also so that we might live a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I take this to mean very simply that we are praying for people in positions of authority so that we might continue to have the freedom to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ without fear of penalty or retribution. I don't know if you watch the news or or read what goes on in our culture, but you'll know that if you do, that the University of Kansas recently had a kerfuffle because faculty on the staff began to petition the provost to have Chick-fil-A removed from campus because it is, quote, a bastion of bigotry. More recently, New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees participated in a parachurch organization in which he appeared in a commercial urging children to bring their Bible to school. He was confronted as being someone who participated with a known, quote, hate group. Now, I am not suggesting in any way that Chick-fil-A or this organization is the church, but if you think for a moment that this kind of language isn't marshaled against biblical churches that seek to rightly submit themselves to the plain teaching of Scripture, you're wrong. The necessity for praying that we might have the liberty to proclaim Jesus freely is paramount. If we're going to order our churches by God's design, we must pray for those in positions of leadership. Now he goes on in verses 8 to 15 to say, albeit at some points in a a difficult way to understand, he goes on to explain that there are specific gender differences within the church. He says in verse 8 that men should pray in every place. This corresponds to the prayers that he's just urged upon us. And then in verse 9, he goes on to explain what women are to do and then subsequently what they are not to do. Verse 9, likewise also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather 
she is to remain quiet. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The problem I would recommend is not that Paul isn't clear. The problem is that he's a little bit too clear. Now certainly, verse 15 is a troubling verse for some. She will be saved through childbearing. I would not die for this. I take that to mean, since he's referred to creation, the seed of the woman who comes to crush the head of the seed of the serpent, Genesis chapter 3. And of course, this is a controversial text and is not my intention in an overview sermon to dive headlong into the controversy. But suffice to say, we believe that Paul is able to say what he means and to mean what he says. Paul's talking about the role and function of an elder. Teach, role, have authority, function. He says, do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. That's why in practice we don't have female elders or pastors. Lest you think I'm simply being chauvinistic for the sake of being chauvinistic, let me read to you from Kathleen Nielsen, a brilliant woman, professor of English once at Vanderbilt University and then Bethel College and Wheaton College. She writes, so 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, addresses what women should do, and verse 12, what they should not. Teach or exercise authority over a man. Of course, both men and women are to submit to the elders, but these instructions are specifically for women. It has been conjectured that the women in the church at Ephesus were being especially disruptive or perhaps grasping for authority in ungodly ways. The text does not say that. For immediate support, Paul goes not to the cultural context, but to Genesis and the order of creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Incidentally, as you read the New Testament, um, Eve is not uniformly given the blame. Adam, more often than not, is the one who's given the blame because he abdicated his authority to lead his wife in the garden. And that's exactly the point that Paul's making here. Men in the church are not to abdicate the authority of shepherding within the church. If we are going to be a healthy church, we must order our worship by God's design. Number three, Paul tells Timothy to appoint qualified leadership. Interestingly, Paul goes right from the function and role of an elder into the qualifications for elders and deacons in chapter 3, 1 to 13. This is familiar territory given the fact that we've just seen uh, the qualifications for elders in Titus. What I want to point out here in this particular passage is, once again, Christian leadership is of a completely different ilk than any other sphere of human leadership. Paul goes on to talk about elders who are to rule in the church, that's chapter 5, verse 17, and deacons who are to serve in the church, that's chapter 3, verse 13. The elders, according to Paul, are the governing body within the church. The deacons are to serve the elders and the larger church body faithfully as ministers or servants. What is not different, however, about the way that Paul talks about both elders and deacons is that the primary concern for Paul is not what they are able to do, it is who they are. Once again, his primary focus is not what they are able to do, 
not what they've done in other spheres of leadership. His primary purpose is to expose for Timothy the character requisite to leadership in the church. I just want to say I have noticed as a trend, and I believe a very unhappy trend, that in the church we have somehow begun to confuse what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and what he says here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and to pit the two chapters against one another to say that a pastor and elder who has sinned in absolutely scandalous ways should then be admitted back into pastoral leadership because somehow or another that promotes, quote, authenticity. But that is not what Paul's talking about. Does it seem contradictory to you that in chapter 1, Paul talks about the gospel being completely free and offered to all who will believe in Jesus, that the law is laid down for the sinful and the lawbreaker, and then in chapter 3 to come around and talk about the character qualities requisite for Christian leadership? The reason he does that is that in chapter 1, he's talking about the fact that anyone who trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, anyone... The moment they believe, this is the line in the hymn, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. But here in chapter 3, we're not talking about whether or not someone will be accepted by God through the Gospel. We're talking about whether someone has displayed in their lives the transforming power of the Gospel and so as uh, in such a way to be qualified for Christian leadership. They're two completely different things. Everyone who believes might come to know Jesus, but not everybody who believes may serve as an elder or a deacon. I'm not going to belabor the point. You can read through the passages yourself at another time. You'll notice that over and over again, the emphasis is on character. The only ability qualification given to elders is the ability to teach. Deacons, likewise, Paul goes on to talk about their character. They must not be addicted to much wine or greedy for dishonest gain, etc. I will note, incidentally, and you'll notice this if you've been around the church for a while, that we don't have women elders. We have women deacons. I think that's right in the text. If you look at Paul's explanation of the qualifications for deacons in verse 11, he says, their wives likewise. That's a word that can be translated either women or wives. If you follow the footnote down to the bottom of the page, wives likewise. It's very bizarre to me, and I think to many other interpreters, that Paul would give qualifications for deacons' wives, but not elders' wives, if the elders are the ones who govern in the church. More likely, Paul is giving the qualifications for female deacons. You do not rule, have authority, or teach. If we're going to be a healthy church, loved ones, we must appoint qualified leadership. Number four, if we're going to behave correctly in the truth and be a, in the church and be a healthy, healthy church, we must keep a close watch on our lives and our teaching. It is not enough simply to be on message. Paul is clear. The way that we live is important and either proclaims or contradicts the message that we proclaim. He says in chapter 4, beginning in verses 1 through 5, that there are many, the Spirit has told him, who will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Again, the nonsense being spewed by the false teachers in Ephesus. On the other hand, Paul instructs Timothy 
to train yourself for godliness. Look at that verse 7. In, in contrast to having to do with irreverent, silly myths, Paul says to Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Now that word there used for train is the, the word I believe, you'll have to ask Dr. Wilkinson at some point, I believe it's the word from which we get the word gymnastics, to train. Paul is saying, work hard at training yourself, Timothy, to be godly. Bodily training has some value, but godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. He goes on to explain what Timothy must do. He assumes, verse 13, that there will be reading of Scripture to exhortation to teaching do not neglect these things. Preach the word, he'll go on to say in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But look at verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Here we go, verse 16. Keep a close watch. Here's our point. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Look at why. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Again, there is either a validation or an invalidation of the message we proclaim given by the lives that we live. When I was in high school, one of my, one of my close friends, his father was a doctor. And we used to hang out at their house all the time. And it was the strangest thing. I got over it after a while, but it was the strangest thing when routinely, each and every evening, my friend's father, who was a doctor, would step outside for you know, seven or eight cigarette breaks in the course of the night. He thought, that doesn't make sense. You're a doctor. Don't you understand that that's bad for you? I mean, have you ever been in a doctor's office and for the first time you're seeing this new physician, they come in and they're a picture of bad health? And you think to yourself, either you're not taking your own medicine or you just, your medicine doesn't work. You think, I'm not going to listen to a word this person has to say to me. That's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy. If you're going to tell people that Jesus has come to save sinners, if you're going to tell people that Jesus has come to free people from their sins, it is absolutely inconsistent with your message that you would continue to live in the very sins which you claim Jesus has come to free you from. Loved ones, authenticity in Christian leadership is not leaning into sin. It's repenting of sin. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And the same principle applies to every member of every local congregation in every place. That word that is so often levied against the reality of the Christian Gospel. I will never go to church, they say. Why? Because it's filled with hypocrites. Keep a close watch. Be careful, not only about what you have to say, but about the way that you live. We're not so naive as to think that perfection is attainable, but we do believe enough in the gospel to say that when Jesus saves a sinner, he saves her. Watch your life and the teaching. What are we going to do if we're going to behave properly in the church? Number five, we're going to show proper honor to all. That's chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 6, verse 2. The elder board was considering this chapter together on Monday night. They helped me quite a bit in seeing the structure of the passage. 
You see in verse 3, Paul instructs us to honor widows who are truly widows. He refers to widows who are truly widows again in verse 16. Then in verse 17, he tells us how we are to honor elders. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, how we are to honor masters, or in our context, we might say, employers. If we're going to be a healthy church, we must be a place where people are shown the honor that God commands we show them. It is a useless testimony to the world around us if honor is not what characterizes our relationships with one another. Useless testimony. Oh, you're the household of God? I've seen how that family fights. I don't want to have anything to do with that. Paul says we're to honor widows who are truly widows. Look at verse 9. He defines who a true widow is. Let a widow be enrolled, he says, if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. Incidentally, this is the exact opposite phrase of husband of one wife in chapter 3. This is a wife of one husband. Having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, let her be enrolled. We recognized this past week that we don't have a list like this, and we darn well should. The Bible commands it. Loved ones, if you you know of a widow here in our church who's 60 years of age or older and has been a faithful sister in the Lord and doesn't have a family to care for her, let us know. We want to honor you. We want to show you the honor that you are due as a beloved mother to many of us in the faith. It goes on to explain that we are to refuse to enroll younger widows. Explains why. Verse 17, he moves to the issue of honoring elders. Now, there are two things here that are distinct about the way that elders are to be honored. They are to be shown double honor, but also to be disciplined. They're to be shown double honor, but also to be disciplined. Look at what he says. Let the elders who rule well, that is govern well, be considered worthy of double honor. Let's pause for a moment, and let me just highlight the single honor before we get to the double honor. Understand that biblically, elders are to be honored. Honored. Not to be dismissed, not to be bullied around. They're not here to serve as public relations, customer service. They're to be honored. They rule, they govern in the church. So that sounds a little self serving. I have a whole group of men to whom I am accountable. And it's my desire to show honor to. When Paul talks about double honor, he simply means paying the pastor who preaches and teaches. But look at where Paul continues to move as he talks about the honor that is due to elders. He explains that with that great honor comes the responsibility to live a holy life. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Well, I don't want to do that. The elder's a really good preacher. The elder's a really good administrator. People really like that elder. Look at what Paul goes on to say. Do not, uh, I'm sorry, in the presence of God, verse 21, and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. See, again, elders are worthy of double honor because as elders they labor to shepherd and to give an example of what a life in Christ looks like. 
And so when an elder goes astray and persists in sin, Paul says they must be rebuked in the presence of all so that all might fear. If we are going to be a healthy church, we must show proper honor to all. Paul goes on to talk about masters, evidently people in the church in Ephesus who had been slaves, refused to submit to their Christian masters on account of their like faith. We would apply this today to employees and employers. You have a Christian boss, don't you know, slack on your work because after all, your, your boss is a Christian. They won't hold you accountable. That's what Paul's getting after. Show them honor as brothers. And then lastly, if we're going to be a healthy church, we're going to behave rightly in the church of the living God. Paul says we must pursue contentment rather than gain. Now this might be the one spot in this entire letter where Paul's admonition that we should look different, that we should look differently than the world around us comes out strongest. Paul goes on in chapter 6 to talk about these false teachers and to talk about their motivation being greed. Verses uh, 2 through 5, he says in verse 5 that they believe that godliness is a means of gain. They teach for profit. Their love is money. Materialism is their idol. These are proposed or purported, rather, ministers of the gospel. But Paul says godliness with contentment is, as a matter of fact, great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If we have food and clothing, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. Look at what he says, verse 10. For the love of money is a root, not the root, of all kinds of evils. It is through this, through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Once Paul is clear, if you're desire, if your hope is set on the accumulation of wealth, you have not understood Christ. Plain and simple, if your desire, if your motivation in life is the accumulation of wealth, you have not understood Christ. It is not a sin to have possessions. It is a sin to crave them. Paul goes on in verse 17 to address the rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, there's that tone again, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes, here we go, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Seems to me like the, 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 ultimate antidote to materialism is being ready to share. I woke up this morning to this story on CNN that challenged me to my core. I told the story of this young boy named Noah Johnson who found himself in the hospital, four-year-old boy. One of the family friends was texting who she thought to be Noah's mother to ask what she should bring for lunch later on in the day. Here she was texting a complete stranger. She had the wrong number. 
And in conversations with this complete stranger, he began to ask her, what can I do for little Noah? Her response is, you can pray for him. To which he replied, I don't really pray, but I'd be happy to give. I can donate. What can I do? I'd like to teach my own children generosity. How can I help? It seems to me that within the church, church made up of people who have come to know Jesus because of the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. It seems to me that the people who should be most ready to give are not those who, quote, don't really pray but those who have come by faith to know Christ. Friends, the point of this walkthrough of 1 Timothy is simply to display how it is that we are going to hold up the truth of the gospel for all to see. And it begins with us coming to terms with who we are You know, the phrase that we use in our staff all the time is that it's being before it is doing. We might put it this way, don't let what God wants to do through you prevent you from pursuing what God wants to do in you. The same principle applies to us as the church. Before we even begin to consider what we are to do, we have to consider who we are. Who has God made us together in Christ? And Paul is clear that we are the household of God. We are the church of the living God. We are the supporters, the upholders of the truth. And if that's who we are, then that determines everything that we're going to do. What are we going to do? We are going to wage the good warfare for the gospel, chapter 1. We are going to order our worship by God's design, chapter 2. We are going to appoint qualified leadership, chapter 3. We are going to keep a close watch on our lives and on our teaching, chapter 4. We are going to show honor to all, chapter 5. And we are going to pursue contentment rather than gain. And let me tell you right now, if we will give ourselves to the obedience of 1 Timothy, not only will we grow numerically, but you will grow spiritually. Have you considered the importance of our corporate health as a church? We value church health rather than church growth. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have made us to be the household of God. That by Your Son, Jesus, You came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and rose again. That we now are the very brothers and sisters uh, in, of one another in the Lord. Truly, we are the household or the family of God. And so, Lord, we pray 
that You would enable us to live to the family name. We pray, Father, that we would be diligent to wage the good warfare for Gospel clarity. That we would seek to order our worship according to Your design. We pray that Your grace would be upon us so that we might always be led by qualified leaders. That each and every one of us who names the name of Jesus would keep a close watch on our lives and on the teaching. That we would take seriously the call to show honor to all within the church. That it be widows or elders or employers or the visitor. And Lord, we pray that You would uproot idolatry from our hearts so that we would understand the great gain of godliness with contentment. So that rather than pursuing wealth, that we might be able to say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but You? And on earth there is nothing that I desire but You. And as the world around us sees the way in which we function as this healthy family of God, that the words of Jesus would ring true throughout our area, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Lord, we commit this local body to you, to your tender care praising and thanking You that You, Lord Jesus Christ, promise that You will build Your church and that the gates of hell will never prevail against it. We give You the praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.